Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, a doctoral program, and two new online Master of Arts programs. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about Dr. Julia Lovell's new book, Maoism, A Global History. And joining me to offer his insight on this new book is Dr. Christopher Harmon. Dr. Harmon holds the Bren Chair of Great Power Competition at Marine Corps University and is also a professor at IWP, where he teaches courses on military strategy and terrorist advocacy and propaganda. Dr. Harmon, welcome. Well, thank you. Good morning. Jumping right in to the questions that I have for you today, Julia Lovell's new book shows us Mao Zedong as a founder, as a secular icon, as a tyrant, as a writer, as an ideologist. What kind of man was Mao? Right. Well, he was certainly all of those things that Lovell talks about and some others, too. Uh, he was uh, from a family that was not poor. And he had the advantage of growing up in pre-communist China, not the communist China he remade. So uh, he was able, because of that, um, a lack of censorship and such, to acquire a, a reasonable and wide education. Um, Mao Zedong uh, worked for a while in a library. Uh, he read a great deal. He was affected by his country's historical romantic novels, for example. Um, he came eventually to the communist classics. And uh, I expect, I don't know this, but I believe he probably read some Karl von Clausewitz on war. Uh, we know Lenin did and closely marked up his copy we know Mao read a lot of Lenin, and, and I suspect Mao read some Clausewitz, too, and certainly through other communists, he, he, he acquired ideas of, about Clausewitz, especially the, the political character of war and violence. Uh, one thing that really impresses me about Mao is his originality. Uh, he recognized that Soviet-style urban insurrection and, and, you know, labor union work in factories, that these are fine, but they're not enough. And he focused on the peasantry as the true center of gravity for what he wanted to be a Chinese revolution. Uh, the Communist Party established uh, in his day made some mistakes. Uh, they made a few belly flops and Mao's opposition within the, the CP China helped raise him from minority status. And so by the end of the long march, he's really the preeminent leader and ideologist. Uh, he's also attentive to civil military relations in his own way of seeing those. So he, he's, he's got a good partnership going, especially with one senior general uh, and with others in the armed forces. So He's an impressive man. He, he could learn and he studied. When you teach Maoism here at IWP in your courses on strategy and also on terrorism, what do you present as Mao's most important idea? 
Well, two come to mind with that question. The first is that the, the Clausewitzian notion of war as political is something that he internalizes to extents that very few people would. Uh, the understanding that war is thoroughly political just runs all the way through Mao Zedong. Um, and politics, for example, are so central that every soldier becomes a kind of amateur propagandist for the communist cause. He's not just supposed to be really well informed on all the communist purposes and the character of the movement and what he's supposed to be doing at his time in history. Um, he, he's supposed to be able to be a kind of propagandist so that if he's deployed or if he's overseas, you know, he could be effective in that way. And this is completely foreign to any American soldier who's carefully tutored to not be political. I guess the second thing, the second real important idea with him in warfare is the idea that war is going to be both rural and protracted and come in, in three phases. So um, the famous phases he explores in a couple of his essays uh, the first is uh, a lot of propaganda, guerrilla warfare, uh, probably some terrorist attacks. Uh, the second phase is as the uh, belligerents on the communist side get more and more potent and organized and well-armed and equipped and have base areas they're operating out of, uh, they can do what he calls mobile warfare. That's the second phase in Mao. And, uh, and then there's uh, something later co coming called, you know, conventional or positional in which the forces are not, are not just rivals to the existing state's uh, security forces, but uh, able to take them on in serious battles, campaigns, and, and do well. And this is the, the famous, you know, late 1940s period of Chinese history when they're really overrunning the country and beating the Kuomintang. Um, this idea of the three phases can be looked at in one other way, and that's uh, that first phase of guerrilla war and propaganda and all is a, a kind of strategic defensive. The second one, which he calls mobile warfare, that's more like a kind of stalemate. You have you have stasis in the country. You have those two strong sides, and and neither one really defeating the other. And the third is a kind of strategic offensive by the communists, and that's. That's that phase we talked about, about uh, positional warfare. So those are, uh, those are the major ideas about warfare and violence that, that Mao causes us to think about. So Julia Lovell's focus in this book is about Maoism overseas. And I gather that there is much that is uh, original in her approach. Yes, uh, I think treating Maoism overseas is a great idea. Um, you know, can can you export Mao? And the answer, I think, is yes. And and uh, I've you know I've talked about this with students for years, but I've written very little. I think this author deserves real credit for choosing her theme, and it's an excellent one. Um, Apart from Julia Lovell, um, I'd say we should look to National Defense University. We're lucky to have there an American named Thomas A. Marks. He's written a great deal about Maoism outside China. Uh, his books on people's war in Asia are wonderful. But, you know, Tom Marks's works are not footnoted in this new book uh, of, of 2019 uh, by Lovell. 
and um, there aren't too many besides Marx and Lovell who, who really work on this, at least in English, and publish about the export of Mao's ideas uh, by foreign fighters. Um, Lovell has, has given us a kind of encyclopedia here of the major Maoists overseas that includes some interesting people, the, the propagandists who do this uh, because they're believers, uh, a couple of journalists who've been taken in badly, scholars who kind of walk the Beijing line. There's a lot of variety in Maoists overseas. Uh, and then, of course, her focus and, and mine is, is on the violent movements, the organized violent Maoist movements overseas, the, the fighters. And these cause a lot of serious security concerns in many foreign countries, Hannah. A number of early Maoist movements were in Southeast Asia. How successful was this Chinese form of communist thought in those countries fairly close to China? Well, Lovell uh, has a tremendous quote from Ho Chi Minh. Uh, so a, a French journalist is asking why uh, Ho writes so little. And Lovell quotes the response. Uh, Ho Chi Minh replies, well, what is there for me to write about? All the theory that's needed has been worked out by Mao Zedong. What a, what a revealing quotation from the head of the Vietnamese uh, communist effort. Um, I think... I think we've all been in conversations with, with, where we've heard other Americans argue that, that Ho was mostly a nationalist and, and for us it was a missed opportunity. Uh, I think that's very false. Uh, he was actually, he was part of the Soviet-led Comintern. In fact, he was a, one of the co-founders of the Communist French Party, French Party, not, not Vietnamese, although he did that too. I once gave my students a copy of Ho Chi Minh's eulogy when Lenin died, and it drips with, with affection and, and with tears. Uh, so, so Ho's model really isn't George Washington, it's, it's Lenin. Uh, Mao is a convinced Leninist, and Ho and Mao are, are simpatico. Um, now, Indo-Chinese communism is interesting. Uh, it, it gets going in the 20th century with the conviction that all of these good folks should be working together across Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia. It's a really Indo-Chinese effort as it's first conceived and, and supported by the Comintern. And the communist parties go on then later and take on more separateness kind of country by country. Uh, but even then the, the Vietnamese are operating very heavily in their war during, during their war in Cambodia, in Laos, and, and in all these years leading up to victories in 75. So all three of those countries, Laos, Vietnam, Cambodia, are all communized in the mid-70s. Uh, now, there's a big movement in Thailand, which looks to Mao, and then Tom Marx has written well on Maoism in Thailand. Um, a lot of people have studied Malaysia, and that is an, an amazing case. And uh, the, the supporters of Mao there, uh, those who wanted to transform Malaysia, are quite a case study. Now, in older days, uh, books on low-intensity conflict and, and such often told the story of this battle and how the British and their Malaysian allies defeat the communists in, in this long campaign of, of 1948 to 1960. 60s about the year, by the way, that you really can start seeing the Sino-Soviet split and, 
and Maoist ideologies becoming more important. Well, the leader in Malaysia uh, is a fellow named Chin Peng. And despite the events of 60 and 61, when he's prompted by Beijing to you know, make peace and, and, and let the Brits and Malaysians have, have the, the new sort of new Republican status for the country post-colonialism, uh, Chin Peng remains a believer. He's a believer. He goes up on the Thai border and continues with protracted rural war there. He will not surrender until 1989. A, a remarkable illustration of a non-Chinese Maoist who is Maoist to the core. Uh, he, he published his autobiography, which I encourage people to read. It's called My Side of History by Chin Peng. Where else in Asia today is Maoism making an important impact in ideology and in violent movements? Well, uh, India and Nepal, to be sure. Uh, now, now, India has a so-called red belt uh, that's in the east, central east, and it runs north to south. It's a, it's a very large region. And revolution's been cooking off in those parts of India since 1967, a group who are now called the Naxalites, began demanding much more from India's democratic governors. Um, some say this movement is India's greatest security threat. Uh, they kill Indian police, soldiers, civilians. Uh, it could well be that the, the greater security threat is, is Pakistan's nuclear weapons, but uh, that shows you how seriously the Indians take the Maoist movement within. Now, in Nepal, the picture's been different, uh, violent, but, but a different picture. Uh, Nepalese Maoists waged a truly wide and, and violent struggle for a decade. And by 2005, 2006, they had done so well that they took an open power sharing arrangement with other parties in Nepal. So many top officials, including prime ministers, plural, prime ministers of Nepal, have been Maoists by now. Uh, but there's also a lot of uh, infighting. The parties fragment a good deal. Uh, they fragment, and, and, it, and it's a good deal for non-Maoists who have to live there. Um, the top leaders of these Maoists in Nepal are also interesting. Nepal, India, uh, many others outside China in that they are extremely well-educated. Uh, they may be directing butcheries in the field or guerrillas in the shadows uh, and extortion operations inside towns, but the movements are based on Maoist ideology and many of these people are learned and educated people. Uh, one man, very interesting, who became prime minister in Nepal uh, a Maoist, uh, got his PhD from India. Uh, and I still remember when he makes a state visit here to America and New York City and, and gave a lecture at a prestigious university in, in New York. So the top leaders of these movements are often highly educated. And uh, there's so many such cases that in, uh, in 91, 92, in the Journal of Political Communication, I published a, a long article about uh, the leftist use and abuse of education. And each month, I think, some new political militant comes to light who makes me remember some of those other particulars. Um, 
And um, uh, Princeton, for example, published a book a few years ago about all the engineers have become terrorists. Uh, it's, a, it's a striking thing we don't often attribute to Maoist movements. Again, the, the high education level of the leaders. Uh, ours is a world that, that really badly needs uh, classical liberal education and, and reasonable civics. Uh, but we have to realize that sometimes the education process has, has twists and turns and, and ideological outputs that have pretty wretched effects. Has Maoism had much impact in our hemisphere here in the West? In America, uh, in America, Maoism has not had too wide a following. Uh, we've had a few fascinating small revolutionary parties. I, I once saw one of their marches on a street in Seattle. Uh, in, in the case of the Weathermen, uh, the terrorists so well known of the early 70s, uh, they did a lot of bombings. They admired Mao. And in fact, uh, their main theoretical publication, uh, about 150 pages long, is called Prairie Fire. And I've studied it. And uh, they, they get that title from one of Mao's slogans that a single spark can start a prairie fire. Meaning if we get to it you know, and work hard, we'll, we'll, we can revolutionize our country. So the American weathermen through bouquets like that to Mao. But for them, I think actually uh, more important communist figures were Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, Fidel Castro, uh, to a degree Lenin. So there's not a strong influence there. And in fact, I would say uh, that the weathermen in our country were actually very poor Maoists. They did not operate as classical Maoists would to make revolution. They were much more fascinated with action and what Mao would have called militarism. Uh, so the, he wouldn't approve of, of all that they did, but they, they often approved of him. Now, outside America, the most interesting case in the Western Hemisphere that we're asking about is definitely in Peru. As we look to Sendero Luminoso or Shining Path in Peru, we're looking at a movement that has, uh, you know, a lot of tracks and books have been written about uh, about this movement. It was extremely important. It killed tens of thousands of people in Peru, probably at least 60. Uh, it was devastating to the economy. They waged a long, protracted rural war and got closer and closer to Lima. Uh, and the, the leader, Abimeo Guzman, was actually hiding in Lima, and he was captured in 1992. It kind of uh, popped the balloon, as it were. It's one of the rare cases of decapitation in a terrorist movement, and they've uh, pretty much disappeared, except for a couple of hundred people still out in, in the mountains. Um, so Peru's extremely important. And by the way, uh, this really underscores the theme in Julia Lovell's uh, good new book, uh, Maoism, A Global History. These guys, even in a place like Peru, uh, in the mountains, um, and, and with uh, strange economic plans and, and a focus on Peru, even there, the Sendero Luminoso folks were linked up abroad. Uh, they had overseas propaganda going. 
they were linked to something called RIM or the Revolutionary International Movement. And this was founded in, in 84 and member parties included Peruvians from Sendero, Turks, other Europeans, Kurds, Southeast Asians, uh, a lot of people besides a Shining Path in Peru. Are there important Maoist groups not included in this new book by Julia Lovell? Yeah, that's uh, and that's a good question for us to 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 end on. I would say there are a few omissions. Uh, I do I do think of it as a encyclopedic attempt. Um, I also hope there's a, a second edition because I have a few prompts that, that maybe she could follow if she was interested. Um, this this wonderful scholar did not cover much with uh, the Sri Lankan scene. There was an important group there called JVP, uh, which runs right into the 80s and which caused incredible violence and is very different racially, ideologically, spiritually from from the well-known Tamil Tigers. It was a different movement. JVP is not much treated. Uh, I would say there's a definite place for a new chapter. If, if, if our friend Lavelle wants to write a, a new edition, and that would be on the New People's Army. Uh, in the Philippines, there's a group that's very important called NPA. Um, now, the communist tradition in that country goes back. It goes back to about 1930. Uh, and at that time, if you were a communist in the Philippines, you, you might have been pro-Stalin. You, you might not have heard of Mao. Uh, later on, there'll be a kind of division in a way in which uh, some are, are more happy with Mao, some more with Stalin. Uh, many just happy to be to be communist revolutionaries uh, on a track for for change in the Philippines. Well, when you get to about 68, 69, what you're looking at is the emergence of a confirmed Maoist organization. Um, this starts with a university professor. There we go again, uh, Jose Maria Sison. Uh, he's teaching in poli sci and uh, and other things. He's explicitly a Maoist. Um, he wrote prolifically, so I've read a great deal of of uh, Jose Maria Cison. He's still turning out long essays, books, interviews. Um, his movement now has oh perhaps three thousand guerrillas active. It used to be many more. Uh, he also can claim credit for hundreds of thousands of people in the country who are supporters, uh, some in violent ways, some just pacific ways. Um, uh, Sison's New People's Army uh, is, like all good Maoists, is very active in the media. They have a worthy biweekly newspaper I see sometimes called Ang Bayan. They've got a presence on YouTube. Um, they sure don't get the attention in the Philippines that the Sunni Salafists are, are getting, like groups like Abu Sayyaf or cells for ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whatever. But they're very important. These Maoists of the New People's Army are, are very important. Uh, President Rodrigo Duterte calls them terrorists. There's some truth in that. They do plenty of that. But they also do a great deal of organizing and guerrilla warfare. And, and other things. Um, Sison 
really does publish a great deal and advertise himself a great deal. And he's trying to keep Maoism contemporary and keep it lively. So we look uh, closely at CSOAN and this kind of work. In fact, uh, in my course right here at, at the Institute of World Politics, um, the course 686 on terrorist advocacy and propaganda, we we study the in the New People's Army, and so uh, so Hannah, that course will start again uh, right here in July. Well, I believe that is all the questions that I have for you today. Again, thank you, Dr. Harmon, for joining us for another book review and discussing Dr. Julia Lovell's new book, Maoism: A Global History. Thank you, Hannah.